welcome to Making Sense of Automation, powered by BEA. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making Sense of Automation, live discussions addressing challenges and resources in automation. My name is Camila Esquiu with BEA. Our guest today is Jeff Dunham. He's a codes and standards manager at BEA. He has been around for 30 plus years of experience in the field, and he will be guiding us to the nonsense and the necessity of standards and building codes for industrial doors and commercial gates. Today, we're going to be discussing codes and standards and what does it mean for industrial doors and commercial gate installations. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Bouchard, and I have worked with Jeff at BEA for more than eight years, if you can believe that, Jeff. But I do a lot of application-based technical support, and we frequently need to be familiar with local codes and standards when we're choosing the right product for the right application. And frankly, I wouldn't know what to do without Jeff to point me in the right direction. It's so important to have someone to be able to interpret the standard or code because they're not written so that they're easily understood. And Jeff has definitely taught me the importance of three words, shall, may, and will. <laughs> thank you so much, Mark. And thank you, Jeff, and welcome here. And thanks for, for spending some time today. So obviously, ever since I started with BEA, you have been the Colts and Standards Manager. But can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this industry? I, I think we all kind of like want to know how was your journey. Sure. Hey, yo, uh, Camilla and Mark, thanks. Yeah, so been in the industry for, I think I've somewhat stopped counting after 30 years. It just really, to me, didn't matter too much if it was 31 or 39 years. But if I go back in time and, and think about this, and I've thought about it a little bit based on some of the questions here for today, way back sometime in 1981, I actually started in called contract glass and glazing. So we do installations of storefronts, doors, windows, and small curtain walls for, for commercial businesses. So got a good foundation of installing frames, doors, and, and construction, and you know working with your hands and, and assembling products. And then after about close to 10 years, I think somewhere around 1990, I had an opportunity to transition into actually automatic doors, which we had worked with several companies over the years, but I really didn't have an idea what, what I was getting myself into. So uh, <laughs> transition, because if I didn't like the automatic doors, I thought, oh, I can just go back to contract glazing and then go back to installing doors and windows for businesses, because I knew that really easy. So, so anyway, I, I enjoyed the automatic door aspect. It was definitely different and challenging way back before we had optical sensors, some of the technology advances we have now. But so I, you know, in the field for about 10, 10 years, up until about 1999, which I actually transitioned from the field to BEA Inc., located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I've always worked out of my house from that point on. So I started with BEA as a Midwest technician, traveling around the central part of the United States, trying to use my experience in the commercial door industry and how to apply power operated doors and then learning a deeper aspect of the sensing world and the sensors that BEA manufactured. 
So since 1999, so more than, I guess, coming up on 22 years now, I've been with BEA for that amount of years. After, you know, a few years of Midwest technician, I was promoted or offered a position of the manager for BEA tech services and did that for about 12 years. In fact, I even hired Mr. Bouchard there in his role of BEA Tech Service. I think after about 12 years of that, I, I'd al I had always been involved from about 2005. I had been involved in some of the, the standards operating things that we had done with the Builders Hardware Manufacturer Association. That's the entity that that we belong to as membership, and that's the entities that write and co-author all the ANSI standards for the pedestrian world. And then soon after that, I was involved in a couple different trade associations, one of them being DASMA, the Door and Access System Manufacturer Association, and that trade association has all the stakeholders and we co-author the UL325 and that type of standard that, that pertains to the overhead commercial doors and the, the gates and that, that industry. So on the side note of all that, I've been involved with the product liability aspect for many years, kind of a, a part we don't really speak too much of because nobody likes to get sued. So uh, it is a reality if we don't install and maintain the products and installations correctly. So that's kind of where we are today, codes and standards, product liability, and just uh, enjoying it. And it is very dry. You know, it takes the right, right mentality sometimes. It's not, not all fluffy and exciting, but it is kind of dry. But it's a necessary evil that we, it helps guide industry and make sure that products are manufactured, tested, and installed in a safe way so that the person who uses the door or the gate, that they're not put in jeopardy by just simply traversing through or driving through. So we want to make sure it's safe for them, the ultimate uh, the user at the end of the day. So, yeah. Hey Jeff, so you mentioned that you've been here since 1990, at least on the automation portion of it. And, and obviously you also mentioned a lot of entities and different corporations that are related to all these codes and standards. Have you seen an increase? On those, on the amount of places now that you have uh, where to go for information, is it a lot more now than it used to be on the 90s? I would say yes, and that's partly our own by design or uh, on purpose because, for example, we've done a pretty good job of integrating and intermingling in the International Building Code where we have language that says, hey, your automatic garage door or your gate, your vehicular gate shall comply with UL325. So that puts a lot of weight there. And, and we've done the same thing with the pedestrian market as well. We have ANSI standards and then we have building codes and we have cross references for both of those to add weight and enforcement for all of those standards. So yeah, to that respect for sure. Yeah. In reality, I could say way back in the you know, the 80s and 90s, there was no trade association that we could fall back on that would teach us how to do practical field tests. There was nothing. You were all on your own. You didn't really have the manufacturer or a trade association to guide you and how to interpret standards. I always say a standard, whether it's a UL standard or an ANSI standard, tells you what you have to do, but then the trade association tells you how to do it, how to apply practical field tests, how to interpret 
a UL standard or an ANSI standard and apply it in the field. So those are two close knit things that, that we have to, to deal with on a daily basis. So, yeah. Jeff, what are the most common issues you see today regarding codes and standards in the industrial doors and commercial gates? You mean as far as like installations or performance? Sure, uh, or maybe even the most common misunderstanding. Well, both actually to your question, Mark. So if I have to go out and do an inspection of a given application, oftentimes things are not installed correctly or they could be installed correctly, but yet they're not configured or the performance. And that's a big thing, the performance whether we have a speed aspect, uh, a force aspect, or, or, a, or a sensing zone aspect, uh, all of those performance requirements somewhere typically is lacking in some way, shape, or form. And, and part of it is, okay, was it just a shoddy installation? Was it someone who wasn't trained? Was it someone who didn't know? Sometimes. And then sometimes it's it's interpreting a standard in a different way that they maybe applied it wrong uh, or applied it that, that wasn't uh, per the application because it's important to understand the application, the very beginning, that's gonna drive the type of, you know, maybe the type of entrapment protection devices or sensors you may, may be required to install. Absolutely. I think you you touch into a few interesting things here. And, and I think like taking a few steps back, we would like to understand a little bit more the difference between codes and standards, things that we hear those things very often. And yet I think that there must be some misunderstanding of what they really mean. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So oftentimes in industry, those, and I'll, I'll explain a couple more in a second here, but oftentimes in industry, and it depends on the knowledge and experience of a person who's doing the talking, they misstate, uh, unintentionally misstate uh, what a code is or a standard, uh, for example, an ADA door. Okay, what is an ADA door? That's a term that's, that's often misapplied. Or the code that applies to this uh, commercial overhead door. Um, that's not the case. So in the United States, we typically have three factors that we, we consider when we're looking at performance of a system and product liability. So we have one being a law. Is there a law that applies to this store? That's going to be the supreme legally binding information or document. We don't have laws. So the next thing we have to rely on is a building code. If there's a building code that, that describes a, a performance or a system, whether it's a, a commercial pedestrian door or a commercial overhead door, an operator or a, a gate system, that would be the legally binding document that you must, must comply with or you must adhere to what's described or way, the way it's stated in the building code. And if we don't have a building code, the third component is a, an ANSI standard or a ANSI slash DASMA standard. It's a standard that people often say, that's voluntary. Well, okay, it is voluntary, but if that's the only document that you can rely on for your installation, that is the legally binding document that will be used against you if you don't comply. 
So laws, codes, standards, that's the order of operations, so to speak. And depending what is available, whichever one you have is going to be the legally binding document. And in many cases today, since we've done a good job of uh, working with the codes bodies and the, the building code action committee groups that we work with, we have this uh, going back and forth between a building code and a standard. Each one points to the other one so that it helps enforce the requirement and the need to comply with safe installation. So yeah, so there really, there really is no voluntary standard to fall by. And it only applies sometimes if there's a problem or if there's an incident or uh, you need that document to rely on. If that's the only document you got, that's gonna be the legally binding document, typically in court, the court of law. Thank you so much for the clarification here. So looks like we have a poll. So everyone that is participating, feel free to answer on this. So the question number one today is, what do you think when you hear codes and standards? And we do have some options. The first being safety, the second being compliance, third being accessibility, then we have fire cut codes, and then we have liability. I think this is a hard question. When it comes to that, it feels like they're very tied to each other, at least to me. I don't know. We'll see what everyone is thinking. I'd have to say the first thing that pops into my head here is definitely safety. But the second thing is liability. I can't help but thinking about the cost of not meeting a standard or following the code, not just from somebody getting hurt, but from the liability standpoint. Okay, Mark, seems like you were on the right path because there is an 80% that goes with safety, compliance. You can see safety and compliance are the first biggest things that people think when thinking about like codes and standards. So definitely goes back to that. And then we have some, some of the others uh, like the fire codes and so on. So it's interesting. I think everyone's minds goes on the same place when we're talking about this. Jeff, if we can for a minute, let's talk about international building code, because I've learned uh, just a little bit about this recently and found out that every state in the U.S. can adopt the code separately. So I guess I have a, a few questions, but first of all, how do you even keep track of what states are on what code? How often do they update? And it seems like it does take much longer to adopt the new standards. Why do you think that is? It's complicated. It's not trivial. And it's it's difficult to navigate. And, and it takes, I think, someone with years of experience to understand and, and to know the process. So, for example, actually, right now, we're going through an, uh, proposals and updates for the International Building Code, but it's for the 2024 Building Code. Every three years, we update the International Building Code. So here we are in 2021, but we are making proposals today as we speak, and, and proposals are being debated and, and at least voted on in the first stage for the 2024 Building Code. So the other part of your question mark, you know, how often are they, they updated? Uh, so every three years, the International Building Code is updated, but then through the International Code Council, and I, I believe the website's something like iccsafe.org, uh, you can access a matrix of all states in the United States and territories 
a cross a great cross reference chart that shows all types of different codes that each state must adhere to. And I mean, there's several codes on this chart that I really have no clue what they are. For example, okay, the plumbing code, I, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. Commercial plumbing, residential plumbing. Okay. And those are things that we don't, that's outside of our wheelhouse, outside the scope of you know this industry we're involved in. But so this chart has uh, all the states and it's updated typically every six months. So for example, and I know you can't see it right here. Uh, I, have a, I have a chart in front of me. The latest update is actually a pretty recent, uh, January of 2021. I have a matrix in front of me. And as a comparison, and I've, I've looked at this a, a number of times over the years, each state is allowed to adopt whatever version building code they want to adopt and enforce in their state. Some states, choose not to and use their own building code. So for example, so we have the current latest and greatest International Building Code or IBC 2021 goose egg, zero states have adopted it. It's pretty new. So the most recent building code that most states could adopt would be the 2018 International Building Code. And I did a quick check on this before we start here. There are 17 states out of 50 that are using that and have adopted the 2018 International Building Code. And then the 2015 International Building Code, 22 states are using and have adopted that building code. And keep going down the line, there are four states using the 2012 International Building Code zero states using the 2006, 2009, and we have one state still using the 2003 building code. That's a long time ago. And then seven states have chosen to have their own and their own version of whatever of these building codes and adopting that. And it could be more restrictive or less restrictive, but it's their, their ability to do that. They can actually adopt their own building code. So trying to crunch some numbers or rationalize some of this, what I typically see is it takes, it takes, and, and thinking of the United States as, as, as we are, it takes typically three to six years for 50% of the United States to adopt the building code that is three or six years old. So as we look now, as I look at my little cheat sheet uh, below my screen here, if I go back to the 2015-2018 building code, I can see that there's 39 states. So we're above that 50% curve for those, which is good. States are adopting those building codes, but it typically takes at least six years to adopt, 50% uh, of the states to adopt that uh, building code that is six years old. The adoption will depend on factors such as knowledge, history, uh, money, resources. You have to train people, authority, having jurisdiction, fire marshals. They all have to be trained and understand the, the latest and greatest and changes and how to apply them in the field because they're the ones that have to make the inspections. And it's going to be on them to properly inspect and make the, the recommendation for these inspections. So a lot of different factors that will determine uh, when a state may or may not adopt a certain building code, uh, at least by date. So 
hopefully that answers your question. Definitely. Uh, I think in the art industry, uh, one of the standards we're most familiar with and we hear about a lot is UL325. Can you tell me how that is different from the International Building Code? So you just said it, Mark. So it's actually a standard. It's not a code. But in the building code, it says you must or you shall go back to your word, your opening statement. You shall comply with UL 325. So the enforcement of uh, UL 325, it's not optional. You, you have to do it if you're installing uh, vehicular gates or commercial overhead doors. That's a, that's a must for sure. So even though it's, it's a, a voluntary standard, so to speak, the building code says you have to comply with that standard. It's like enforcing it uh, back, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm checking the international building code, but then you still need to do it. So it's just like, there's like a dynamic between them, right? Yeah, and that's on purpose. Why we put that language in the international building code to, to add that, that weight of the building code, which is the legally binding document since we don't have a law. So that enforces the fact that you have to comply with this standard. Because if you didn't, there, I'm sure there's those that have argued that it's voluntary. We don't have to comply. Well, sorry, you got this building code here that says, oh, yes, you do. So it would behoove you to not to definitely comply and you know with what that standard calls for your application and, and the equipment you're you're installing for sure. And and maintaining as well on the service aspect. And the, as a sensor manufacturer, BEA, where can we come into play in, with UL325? So sensor manufacturer, there's different definitions of, of sensors. So we would fall under something that's, that's uh, termed right now, the way the standard's written, uh, as other. So we typically have, we talk about entrapment protection devices. So these are ancillary accessories. We have photoelectric beams. We have edge sensors, a contact sensor. And then from BEA Inc., we have optical sensors, optoelectronic sensors. So it's a little bit new to that industry. Those types of products are not new to industry per se because they are used wow, exclusively and relied upon for decades in the pedestrian power-operated door market, but not necessarily so for the industrial door vehicular gate market. Uh, in fact, there is, a, there is a proposal submitted to UL325 uh, to include, there is some descriptive language to describe performance of optoelectronic sensors. Nothing in that standard says you cannot use that. It just, it doesn't describe it. It, it. it classifies something else as other. So other or equivalent. So it doesn't prevent you from using it, but there's no description of the performance. And that's what we're trying to, to do from an industry standpoint. That's awesome. Hope so. <laughs> and, and we have, you know, the, the industry that has driven that. Uh, Remind me two seconds, I can interrupt you here, but we have a poll right now, it just came up, and the question is, should it be a requirement to perform a safety inspection after each service call? 
we have a yes and no simple question and we can definitely regroup on what we were just like you were just going to tell us here but this should be here in a few seconds i don't know we want to give the answer here yet i have my thoughts on this i have a feeling i know what jeff's opinion is i i absolutely think uh yes here because anytime you uh do any kind of service or or work on a door or a gate you have a chance of messing something up maybe so you need to check and make sure everything's operational when you're done everyone agrees on this uh, mark i think the, the answers were quite clear everyone said yes uh, it should be a required so i agree with that too <laughs> so, and mark even the inverse of that if you were just call out to put a piece of weather stripping on you could find something that may not have been uh, discovered and prevent something so yeah, absolutely. Great point. There's never enough safety. I'm with you. <laughs> well, from a cost standpoint, there I'm, I'm sure you could find good argument that it's going to be too costly, but you try to try to find a happy medium on installation safety and, and convenience as well. So uh, definitely factors that people consider for sure. Absolutely. So were you going to mention us something? Uh, we were talking before this poll came up. You were mentioning some. Uh... Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we, speaking of the UL325 and, and optoelectronic sensors, and, and this is proposed to UL, this this already has the, the industry backing. The whole industry has approved the language uh, that's been written by the trade association and so that's a good thing that, that that's a big hill that we we need the industry support because i don't think it would be very we wouldn't be very successful as an industry if, if one person or one entity drafted something and submitted it to ul without input from all the other industry members and i'm, I'm speaking of the members uh, from the door and access system manufacturer association DASMA. So we have their approval uh, of this. So we, we hope, you know, in the future, good things will, will come out of it. So and we'll see at some point when it's uh, out for, for commenting. So yeah. Looking forward for some updates. So now that you're like talking about these photo eyes and things of that nature, optoelectronic. Now, I just want to try to get your feelings here. And if you can explain us why the installation hike is like, this is something that comes up to uh, us as a question pretty often. Why the installation height for the photo eyes has to be six inches above the finished floor? Uh -huh. Sure. Uh, that's so small child if he's laying on the floor or one of my grandkids perhaps are laying on the ground. I don't want that garage door to come down and pop them in the head. So bad, you know, something bad could happen. So you know it's got to be you know not more than six inches above the finished floor and then uh, within six inches from the face of the door as well. So that's on purpose by, by design. And that's just one aspect. And all of the standards that we, we speak and, and live and die with, these are minimum. These are the minimum requirement. There's nothing in there that says, well, I could add three more photoelectric beams at different heights. If I wanted to, I could add a, an optoelectronic center. I could add an edge contact sensor if I wanted to. You can add other entrapment protection devices. You can certainly exceed. And in fact, in some instances, as 
you, the installer or the service person, you're considered the expert in the industry. If you have knowledge or, or special knowledge of state-of-the-art equipment, it could fall on your shoulders that, hey, why didn't you make the recommendation of, of adding this state-of-the-art product to make the door safer or gate safer? So it could fall back on you in, in some product liability instance. If, if you have this knowledge and you know about state-of-the-art equipment, you could at least make the offering to uh, increase the safety from the, the minimum from what the standard calls. That's good. So it goes back to a meeting day standard doesn't mean that it's going to be 100% safe. You can always go above. It's a minimum, yeah, a minimum standard. You can certainly exceed it. Nobody says you can't. So, yeah. Jeff, uh, Mila gave us a pretty good example for something you might find in the industrial world. Can you give us a couple of examples of things you may see on a gate regarding UL325? I guess pinch points unguarded mechanical moving things, whether it's part of the operator, part of the roller system, or even the design of the gate itself could be inherently dangerous. Not, not being allowed to reach through a gate to activate something, uh, I just think that's so very bad. If you can reach through to activate a button or, or fool something to cause it to activate or move, could be very dangerous and it won't end up well for uh, that person. So, but there are um, some requirements, you know, the, the certain size limitations not to prohibit a human from being able to reach through a gate. There is a requirement that the gate itself should be designed so that a two and a quarter inch sphere cannot pass through. So, I shouldn't be able to reach my arm through the gate to do something unless I don't value my arm anymore. Then, you know, that's a different story. We're talking about something else. So, yeah. It seems like most of the rules regarding UL325 come down to entrapment. Would you say that that is true? Well, I would say the performance or the lack of performance with respect to entrapment is what gets people in trouble, businesses in trouble, owners in trouble. So, Indirectly, I would I would agree to that. That's really good feedback, uh, Jeff. Uh, now, we have talked about what you have seen so far, what you did when you started, how the industry at the time was, and uh, obviously we review codes and standards. So now I would like to see a little bit of what do you think that's going to happen in the future? Like, how do we see codes and standards on the industrial doors evolving, or even on the gates or the commercial gates? as well. Like, what are your thoughts there? Well, I, I think I can sense a couple things. You know, if I look in the crystal ball, some things that, that probably are on the horizon of, of, you know, trying to minimize or mitigate entrapment protection uh, with using certain optoelectronic sensors. And when I say that, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking about time of flight products. And what is a time of flight? Without trying to get into the weeds too much on technology, but Time of flight is a term we use in the industry for a laser-based sensor. Uh, a laser-based sensor is incredibly high resolution and has incredible accuracy for great distances. Uh, it really greatly expands, expands your thinking for starters and how you can use, and, and I often use this term, how to exploit uh, a laser-based product, whether it's from a vertical array or a horizontal array, 
how to use that and basically provide this invisible curtain of light around your application. And even so with IoT devices and connectivity and using smartphone apps to tune and dial in and see, literally see yourself in the detection field, size the detection field with the touch of a finger on your smartphone, things like that. Automation, automation of smart devices and, and doing self-diagnostics and self-checks and reporting and things like that. I, I really see the smart IoT and, and with the, the laser-based products becoming more prevalent in the, in the future for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I have to agree with you. I think we even see those things at the home. I think uh, it's going to be a matter of time before we just see all that uh, be more popular. I know that there is, and we do have some of those options available as of today. And I've seen uh, some of the impact that that has been having on end users and customers as well when they see what they can do. So I look forward to see that future soon, hopefully, and that we can like be talking about that uh, once it's happening. I hope I'm still around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that brings us to the end of our interview today, Jeff. Thanks for spending some time with us and going over the difference between codes and standards. And also thank you for uh, talking us through the industrial door example with the photo eyes and the gate example, especially the, the reaching through. I think that is a, a very interesting part of UL325. And uh, lastly, thank you for the resource uh, website. I put that on the chat for everyone to see. All right. You're welcome. It was my pleasure kind of making a walk down history lane somewhat. Uh, uh, some of the things, uh, yeah, years past kind of didn't recall some of that, but yeah, we did. Okay. So uh, we're coming to the end. Thank you so much for tuning into Making Sense, Sense of Automation. Special thanks to Jeff Bannon for joining us today and for helping us every day. Have a wonderful day. Don't forget to connect with us on LinkedIn. You're welcome. Thanks all. Thank you for tuning into Making Sense of Automation. We hope you found the discussion interesting. All episodes of Making Sense of Automation are available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button BEA hosts a live Making Sense of Automation webinar every month. Visit BEAsensors.com for more information on the program and how to register. Have a great day.